It must have been around the year 1989, I suppose, that I walked into the Dutch department store from Andresman without any plans, really. They were having this um, huge CD sale at the time. And I remember just browsing through all these different titles and discovering something I'd vaguely heard of before. And it was a CD called A Tribute to Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. And it was, and it cost, it was, it was priced at um, five guilders at the time, which was so cheap that I instantly just took it away. I remembered I'd heard Chipler Bell's the name somewhere before, so I, so I just took a chance and bought it, put it on the CD player at home, and I think it didn't leave the CD player for, um, for, for like ages, like for maybe a month or so. And I would listen to it every single night, I think, before going to sleep. Um, and seriously speaking, I think, um, I thought it was so great that it, that I, wasn't even interested in finding the original. So this was my um, go-to version of that album for many, many years. And um, I found out later only that it was done by one person only, probably. It's credited to the Gino Marinello synthesizer orchestra, but I think it's really just Dutch engineer Rulzat Noordijk who recorded it at home. Um, it's not something we'll discuss um, today, but um, my name is Tobias Fisch. I'm a music journalist, and that was my first experience with Mike Oldfield's music. and. Um, Pretty definitely one of the most important albums in my entire life. Um, and I'm really looking forward to embarking on the journey that this album started in this podcast series with my friend Markus Reuter. Yeah, I'm Markus Reuter. I'm a musician, composer, uh, producer. My first experience with Mike Oldfield's music was in 1981 or 1982. And my uncle, he had a hi-fi setup, which was uh, set up on his on a filing cabinet that that I still have now with an interesting door that you can roll up and down. And uh, he had the record player on top of it. And I think I heard Five Miles Out first, Taurus 2, and Side 1 of Tubular Bells. And uh, he gave me a tape of Tubular Bells then. And uh, I was listening to that in the in the kitchen with my mother. And, you know, very soon, like I went to a show with my uncle and my, my mother in 82 in Essen, Germany. And uh, also the first record I ever bought was um, Crisis, which was released like 40 years ago in 83, right? And it was the 10th anniversary of Jubilee Bells. And yeah, today we're, we're starting to talk about all the albums slash releases by Mike Oldfield. And even though the one that we're going to talk about today is not the first release, but it's the first release sort of relevant to our discussion and um, it's now it's been now been released as opus one basically the demos for tubular bells there's a beautiful cyclical idea behind this in a way because um, it's the most recent release and it's actually the earliest recorded music we have by mike um, as far as i know yeah well not exactly that not was exactly, the yes. Sally, the Sally Angie with his uh, yes. sister and and you know like the the tubular bells demos they were recorded two to three years before the release of the album. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how much of those of the final album had actually already been realized and sort of pre-planned. There's only very few motifs and themes, let's say, that he developed after the demo, interestingly enough. Obviously, it's more much more fleshed out. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess like the, the studio situation, Having co-producers there, you know, was really, really helping a lot. But yes, it's fully formed. Uh, also, the themes of side two, uh, which is, yeah, which is really fascinating because he was like around, like, must have been 17 when he started doing the demos. Yes. 
<clears throat> so I think that's probably um, taking sort of a journalistic angle. The question to me is, is it the same piece? I think it's fascinating that, um, that we actually have the, the possibility to listen to this. Obviously, it's been, um, it was part of the big tubular box digital set. Um, 2009, yeah, yeah. 2009. And um, so, it, so it's not new exactly, but to me, as, like, as a fan, it's, it's a dream to read about the existence of it mm. and then to imagine what it would have sounded like and then to actually be able to, yeah. to listen to it. You know, actually, it was, was first released as the bonus material to the two th uh, Tubal Bells 2003 edition. Mm. The DVD edition had these demos on it. Oh, that was the first That was the first time that it was released. So that was 30 years after uh, yeah. the release of Tubular Bells. And now it's 50 years after the release of Tubular Bells. And uh, the perspective still has changed. And I remember that, you know, hearing these stories that uh, Mike had bought a, a tape machine from Kevin A.S. and, uh, you know, worked on the demo. But as you say, like, it's it's a miracle that these recordings are, you know, still like in, in existence. So let's maybe dive into those two. I think it's two questions, basically. Um, the one is, is this the same piece? And the other one, maybe even more interesting, slightly more specific, is a claim that at least I read um, in an article by... Um, by the producers is that um, supposedly the fir very first demos were individual tunes where there were fade-ins and fade-outs to the pieces, like there were distinct separate entities. I'm not sure if that is actually true. I don't know if there was a mistake in understanding in, the, in that article. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't but it would be interesting to, to think about the idea of whether maybe there were demos which had the different themes split into separate um, smaller pieces. After listening to it again and again, what's your take, Marcus? Um, is is this is this Opus One? Is that is it the same piece as Tubular Bells? Essentially, I think it's the same piece. Yes, coming from the you know the perspective of the composition, the the, the composition is it's the same piece. However, you know, that it was the early days of still the early days of multi-track recording, mm -hmm. and the studio, and especially in the hands of of Mike Oldfield, uh, became became sort of the uh, uh, a tool for composition. So the, the fact that he, you know, fleshed it out or they fleshed it out in the studio was part of the compositional process. But you could say it's sort of like an arrangement or an orchestration process. So that's why I would say it's, it is certainly the same piece of music. Like I said, you know, there are some, some ideas that are still missing or haven't been worked out properly also in terms of like harmonic progressions and stuff. And the melodies, you know, like the melodies and especially also the harmonies are so intricate. Um, they needed to be worked out. It's not something that, like, I mean, he is, Mike is a genius. Like, no, you know, and I'm sure that he's whispering, has heard all these parts in his head even before sort of like playing them. But with, with the harmonies and stuff, you really need to sit down and work those out. And that is, the funny thing is, some of that is actually very present on the demo already, but you see that it was done in a much more crude fashion. And, and that's really where I see the development of the composition. But yes, it is the same piece. It is, um, there's a passage in, in Changeling um, where he describes um, being in the studio, I think Abbey Road, and um, sort of hearing about the Paul McCartney project at the time, and he sort of pops his head in and 
see and, and tries to to catch a glimpse of what is happening. And it's actually McCartney recording McCartney One, um, which was an incredibly um, an album incredibly ahead of its time with him recording every single instrument and um, basically doing what is completely normal today. So I think that was so that could have been an influence and. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, yes, because it's yes. because it put 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 the idea, but but obviously that the technology was slowly getting there. Um, so it it would have been very interesting to like he he had this um, very simple equipment and he actually uh, manipulated it so you could record this demo at all. Um, so he actually um, screwed it open and stuff he'd learned from his father as a, as a little boy. Yeah. Um, and um, he had to tape over the race yeah. ahead, right? Um, but it would have—it's—it's it's a nice thought to to to, to think what would it would have happened if if it only like maybe three or four years later the technology would probably have been a little bit further and it would have had maybe a few more tracks available to him he could have recorded Opus One himself and it would have been far more stripped down and the question is would he have been satisfied with it or do you think it would have been like the the final product is more what he had in mind. That is interesting to me because this this because I agree this is the same piece. Um, everything is almost everything is there. Actually, there's a few passages I think in in this opus one which are even more beautiful in in, mm -hmm. in this version. Mm -hmm. Around the 14 minute mark, there's this super whether the organ comes out and it has this sort of dreamy quality. It's yeah. almost more beautiful. Yeah. Um, of course, the finale that that that's not fully fleshed out yet. But yeah. um, however. Like speaking of the finale, so the baseline of the finale, yeah. um, which is really physically so hard to play, um, the, the sound like it's it's him playing that there yeah. as a seventeen maybe eighteen year old, and and incredible like that power you know yeah just the the also like the, the not just not just the physical power, but really like the the need to sit down and do something like that and record something like that. So, so you know, like the question, like, um, would it would it have been different if he had had, you know, better technology, let's say, rec to record the demo? I don't know. Um, it's quite possible that he would have gone this way, like even without what has happened to him in terms of opportunities, right? So, I, I it's really that that's sort of like an open question. We don't <laughs> obviously can't answer that. But I think the way that it panned out, that he actually got the opportunity to record it properly and to have experienced um, engineers and and um, you know producers with him, uh, I think that was just just a wonderful coincidence for us now, you know, to have this this wonderful piece of music. It's a mind. It's obviously like total speculation. Had he recorded it sort of by himself with maybe just a little bit better equipment or more advanced equipment? Um, he would probably have been hailed as a pioneer of home recording. And as it is, he was hailed as a sort of a new master of big classical, um, classically tinged progressive rock. That's just, there's, there's a huge gap in between there somehow, even though the music is exactly the same. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, this is a bigger, bigger topic. I don't know if and how he's even recognized for what he's doing or what people are saying or really thinking. But I also think that a lot of people do really not understand what he actually was doing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like I, I can only speak from my perspective as a fanboy, obviously, but also as somebody who 
also sort of like really knows, uh, you know, the, the, the music inside out, right? And, and also like everything around it technically and also the business side of things. So um, the it, Tubular Bells really is something extremely special. And, you know, like the, you know, listening to the two Opus One, you can see, okay, you can understand why people say it's simple, right? They, they, they experience this music as simple, which it technically isn't. No. It's technically, it's not simple. And in a way, I think this gift that Mike has to write melodies and complicated uh, chord changes and 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 counter melodies and and like being self-referential like to an extreme degree is is so great because that's why a lot of people sort of uh, also let's say you didn't don't have to be edu- uh, you know uh, an academic to enjoy his music quite the opposite you can be a very simple person and love his music and I think that is sort of like the big big plus that. And also probably also curse uh, somehow his his music was so 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 successful. If you think about it, like so Peter Gabriel, for example, as somebody who is kind of like started working at the same time around the same time, mm. he has sold like I think fifteen sixteen million records uh, across his whole whole catalog. Yeah. And then there's Tubular Bells, which that record alone has sold that that amount, mm-hmm. and. And so for like Mike's name being uh, still relatively obscure, especially in the US, the, uh, the impact that, that, uh, that music, his music has had, even if it's sort of like subconscious for a lot of people, is immense. And then like realizing that all of this has already been there in this teenager's mind, uh, who was sort of like, uh, you know, as a sort of escape, um, you know, sitting in his, well, actually, like, you know, when he was 15, he left home, left school and left home. But like the, the years before, he must have been sitting there working out all these things. And you know how it goes. Like, sometimes people make a demo and they never make the record. Absolutely. Or people make the first record and never make the second record. But he kept going. And that's also really what Opus One stands uh, for me uh, for. Um, is that yes, you make you you make something, you create something, and you don't stop. You know, so even if it's like everything that has been sort of, how should I say, um, held back in him for like the first one and a half decades of his life, let's say, and then that comes out in this first piece of music, it was not he didn't run dry. Like mm-hmm. that, you know, and we know that that happens to a lot of people. There's an urge to express yourself and uh, something great happens. And then it's hard to follow that up with something else. But for me, as you can see in this progression of the Opus One, Tubular Bells, Big Success, um, Hergis Ridge, Omadon, blah, blah, blah. That is really uh, an absolute success story for me. Yes. To me, I think I'm pretty much on the same page. I think... um, the great thing about having this is seeing what happens in between, of, of feeling what is happening in between, and uh, and then reading about it, obviously, in his own account um, of that year. But I think 1971, when I think most of the material was conceived, um, or at least around that year, that was a sort of a searching year for many of 
the bands around that scene. Um, it, like 1972 is the big year in progressive rock. It's almost the, it's a very short time where that music comes into fruition and then <clears throat> has its peak. And then um, to some, 1973 with um, Tells um, for Oceans, it sort of implodes, um, not for me, but um, no, certainly commercially, um, it does for many. And many bands like Genesis, um, they're sort of searching as well. And I think even Yes, for example, Yes um, released the Yes album at the beginning of 1971. And that is really a searching album where it's sort of um, between their old style and their new style. And then 1971 at the end, in November, they released Fragile, which is almost exactly perfection of what they want to do. And um, I think this, this searching, there's a lot of searching in that album, a lot of very like laser sharp clarity is also in, in, in Opus One. Mm -hmm. But I think you can feel sort of the searching for something and the, like, you can almost feel how the music comes into being while you listen to it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure about this aspect of searching that you, uh, you mentioned. Yes, I mean, like, it's the, I can, I can see the aspect. Well, searching is like it's finding, finding is what it is. Mm. It's not searching. Yeah, I agree. That, that's that's how I would, I would put it. And it's because, like, okay, let's just imagine how you were when you were 17 years old, right? And you actually sit down and do something like this. That you, you need to. Also, in the process, you realize which which parts of what you have been imagining or working on are not working or don't translate the way that you thought they would. And it's great because, and I've been saying this for a long time, like recording yourself is sort of like the most important tool you can have as a modern musician to get feedback about what you do or what, what you sound like. So you can record a solo performance, but if you start multi-tracking, and you're recording to yourself, you start, you, you, you're forced to learn about orchestration, um, arrangement on that level, where it's like, there's several parts kind of like working with each other. And so even though I hear the aspect that, that, that these things weren't fully formed with Opus One, but the, as I said again, the compositions were there. So it's the, so it really is the orchestration and the additional arrangement that is the big step between mm. between uh, you know Opus One and Tubular Bells. Also, it doesn't. It's not exactly clear with Opus One if he already knew what was going to go into Part One and Part Two. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the second section in Opus One is the is the second section in Part Two of Tubular Bells, like piece. Mm -hmm. It's piece. I think it's called the melody, right? So, um, well, that section is called peace. And, and it's, it's funny. So even though for the most part, the, the um, sequence of events in Opus One rep, you know, represents the uh, side one of Chivalry Bells, but then you have demos for, like I said, for peace and for Piltdown Man, um, you know, as, as side two of the Opus One uh, album release. Yes. Yes, in that sense, I agree that it's um, <clears throat> so. This 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 claim. I think it was by Tom Newman, but I'm not 100 percent sure that mm -hmm. that, it, that, there was, that there exists a demo where the 
motifs are individual pieces. Yeah. I don't think I don't believe that in a sense because yeah. I think the way this the piece is written, even though maybe one or two sections switched around, I think to me it's very clear from that this was like it, it was supposed to have this arch. I don't I don't know. Like it was a common technique to splice things together. So it's quite possible that even with the with the demos, Mike was splicing things together. So it, they could have been recorded as separate pieces and yeah. then put together. I don't I don't know. It's really difficult to tell. Obviously, the sound quality is no. The sound quality is okay, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there you can like you can hear where the, the tape got broken and uh, you know and where there are like huge there are huge dropouts. But it's like I said, it's a miracle that it even yeah. exists. You know, like the demos for, like, this is something we need to talk about, like the demos for uh, Hergis Ridge and Omadon, they also got released uh, later on. And obviously they are much more fully formed than what we get with Opus One. But you can see that he actually did demos, right? Mm -hmm. So, which which is something that, like, would have never occurred to me uh, had I not, like, like um, you know, f I first heard about the Omadon uh, version that got scrapped because the tape fell apart and that that version we have that now you know, yeah. in the deluxe edition right my, my impression is when listening to this is that there is so much taking themes and working with the themes in very subtle ways in, in, in the orchestration it carries on really until the baseline emerges and then <clears throat> even then <clears throat> I suppose you can discover um, sort of thematic material in the later part of that first section so I think, to me, it's maybe as you say, it's it's the idea was to maybe it could have been to splice it, but I think this idea of having it being one long piece that, to me, is clear that it was. It's clear. Yes, yeah, absolutely clear. And also just in the way that uh, already the, the 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 thematic development happens, like people think of you know some people don't understand, they think it's like a collection of se separate ideas, but yeah. it's not. It's no. it's. Uh, it's variations on on a few themes, right? This is how we can maybe talk about it. And I was fascinating to be reminded that what, you know, in the documentary, um, in the Tubular Bells documentary, Mike says something that was really moving to me, where he describes Tubular Bells, and then he says, like, when it gets to the second section, where you have the, the organ chords rising yeah. up to the major uh, version of theme B, right? Yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to sing it now. But the, the, what happens is, like in the in Opus One, we actually have the melody, but we only have the minor version, which comes later, which comes much later in the piece. So the major version is not, which is like the big cli first climax, mm. is not present in Opus One. And here, so what I what I realize is, okay, so he already must have had these ideas that the themes can exist in different forms and different tonalities in different, uh, uh, you know, like major minor. Uh, and also like later I learn also like the harmonies for the beginning, for the, for the main theme, right? Uh, he kept, kept changing them. Sometimes it's uh, Aeolian mode, sometimes it's Dorian mode and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So, so just to say that he was sort of like, purely inspired and intuitional it doesn't make it doesn't make sense when you look at the way he was varying so he was very much aware of of um, of modal theory even though if he doesn't have the words for it but he was using all all of that 
And um, so uh, back to that that first climax. So it's fascinating to see that that isn't isn't there in Opus yeah. One, at least not in the in the way that we know it now with the, with the final version of Tubular Bells. But that the 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 minor version of it is is fully fleshed out and is even more a song in itself on Opus One than it is uh, on the final record. So do you think that is because the idea came later as he was working with the material? Do you think it's maybe even because the possibility of using these organ mm -hmm. swoops um, mm -hmm. as a way of effortlessly transitioning through um, different tonalities allowed it for him to make that switch? It's, it's, quite, it's quite possible. I, I, I wouldn't know. It's really that uh, in terms of composition, he's, he's really like does amazing things that again, like people don't realize. Yeah. So when it goes from the first section, which is all in A minor, right? A minor Aeolian. Um, and then, then it, you know, like, I mean, we need to talk about, and we'll talk about that much more when we talk about triple bells. But what happens in tubular bells is that the first section is A minor and then the second, the, the major melody is, I think, F sharp major or something. So very, like, it couldn't be further away, mm -hmm. like, you know, and he finds this transition, this beautiful transition, which, as you said, kind of like is uh, supported by that, by that raising, yeah. by that, by that major chord on that organ, or, you know, on that organ. And um, as a matter of fact, I think, I think that these ideas, they must have been there and then fleshed out in the studio. I, I, I don't think that the technology itself inspired the composition in this way, as we may imagine, but we never know. Like I said, I think it's, it's become a compositional tool for him. Um, with, with the demo, the, the, the ability to multitrack basically was the tool to compose. And we don't know for sure, like how many times he had to repeat something to get it right. Maybe he had really had to work it out. Maybe it wasn't totally clear in his mind. Um, but as you say in Changeling, he he kind of hints at how things were for him, and he says that when he was like out with his father, the fa father was a doctor, and like Mike had to wait in the car, mm -hmm. and uh, you know he was um, imagining music that he had heard, and like how like all the all the, the the parts and the voices and everything kind of like um, was speaking openly to him. So he he basically says that he was very much aware when like a melody came in that was a version of another melody or there was half speed or uh, like in the basses now rather than in the in the melodies and and stuff like that. And and I I really do do think that there there has been sort of like a plan in place. Um, from the very beginning, mm -hmm. and like Opus One to me, kind of like really totally hints at that. And then like realizing that, like even on side two, which we only have Peace and Piltdown Man, yeah. uh, you know, the demos for on Opus One is that even those are the are um, just variations. It's the same melody, same theme, yeah, yeah? and and. And it's 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 incredible. Like, um, it it you know it's it's funny. Like in a way, you could say that Opus One kind of gives us say like a ninety five percent realization of like what he had in mind, which obviously is not true. <laughs> yes, factually, it's not true. Then 
there's also just so much more. And, I, you know, this is sort of like for you as a journalist, you can tell me. So what happened? You said, okay, like the prog scene or the music scene sort of exploded in those years from 70 to 73 with a lot of like key contributions by other musicians. And I mean, we should not forget that Mike was already a, a professional musician, like from when he was, I don't know, 10 years old, yeah. uh, playing pubs and then <clears throat> joining uh, Kevin Ayers at the whole world when he was 15 or something, yeah. uh, playing bass, right, initially. And, and, you know, like we need to mention David Bedford, right? Like in this Opus One context, David Bedford is already present, uh, even though nobody uh, speaks about yeah. him because he was his bandmate. Uh, in the whole world, right? Yeah. My impression is that in terms of... So the, the, the interesting thing about the British prog scene is that these bands, many of these bands knew each other. Mm -hmm. And even if they didn't know each other personally, they were very aware of the music um, other bands were playing. And um, you can sort of hear the sound gradually um, coming together, even with obvious, very clear variations and each band giving their own twist to it. Um, and, and so I think that's why 1972 is the year for that particular style, because in this year, it all comes together. Each band playing to the maximum of their compositional capacities and taking ideas which fit that, like their own interests from many different parts of the scene. And to me, when I listen to Tubular Bells, and I've really tried to find like where could possible points of inspiration have been, I don't see any. It's just, it doesn't seem to take its influence from that. He does mention um, sort of things he picked up somewhere. There's the, the track, um, uh, We Did It Again. Um, which he played with Kevin Ayers, mm -hmm. um, which is um, with the, the idea of repetition and him coming to grips with this idea. Why would you repeat something which is uh, very simple, maybe? And why would you repeat that over and over again? But clearly, I mean, it doesn't, the Tubular Bells opening riff doesn't sound like even the tiniest bit like we did it again. There's, yeah, yeah there's, I mean, we need to mention that, that there are sort of like additional demos for Tubular Bells that are not on the Opus One record or uh, releases. So there are, as you say, some um, Kevin Ayers uh, moments yeah. where he's exploring already, uh, you know, like this this main chord sequence he used at the uh, for tubular bells at the end of side two, uh, for example, and the 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 bagpipes guitar part, which is actually also on Opus One with the same thing. So it's also the same sequence that he uh, explored yeah. with Kevin Ayers already, and um, and there's the Sally Angie uh, record he did with his sister. And in the context of those recordings, he recorded some, uh, some, some solo guitar pieces, which um, have, and this is, have some of the Amarok stuff on it, which was Amarok was done in mm. uh, 89 or 90. So l like much later, and Omadon, like Sad Song for Rosie, was part of that as well. So you see, like, not only was like tubular bells demoed at that time yeah. also like future melodies future ideas were already present around that time yeah he's 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 um he's pulling it from <clears throat> from him from inside himself i think more than 
other influences. I mean, the idea maybe like for this for a repetitive theme, maybe it's from a rainbow. Um, yeah, you know, Terry Riley. Yeah. Terry Riley, and then right. actually, it's more even convincing. The toccata is probably even more convincing in a sort of because it has a similar the melodic thing if you inverse it, but it doesn't sound like it. It's 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 the idea that matters. So he comes, he has this idea, and then he it goes through him, and I mean, in in a way. Like I, I think we, some of us know <laughs> that he's he's a real music fan. Like in in like he never mentioned it, right? Like publicly, it was not that he was a fan of other music and other mm -hmm. bands. Which obviously, like with be, being such a maniac, recording your own music, obviously at some point you don't really consume mm -hmm. that much other music. But he's a big fan of Pink Floyd, yeah. and he's been seen at shows uh, all throughout his life. Um, Anyway, like the point I was trying to make is like at the at the beginning of his career, like the influences, they are there, they're all there. But he has this very unique take on sort of like a romantic kind of style, let's say, to combine with all those influences he's been he's been having. So he was very clearly aware of contemporary classical music at the time, um, like maybe via David Bedford. I don't know exactly. Um, he had studied the great, you know, composers writing symphonies and stuff. Like he was exposed to that, um, exposed to rock and roll, exposed to obviously the Beatles, um, like was the early Pink Floyd. Jazz, uh, jazz. I mean, Centipede. Um... Yes, it's, exactly. Uh, September Energy. Yeah. Right. And 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 all these things. And he played. He played with Kevin uh, with um, Robert Wyatt. Yeah. Right, Robert White was the drummer um, with Kevin Ayers for a while, you know. So he really kind of like was was in the how do you say in the midst in the in the middle of all of these intense developments in music, and that's you know. And Prague was just one influence. Mm. Like we are, like we also know that he's a King Crimson fan, right? So, but do you hear King Crimson in Mike's music? No, not at that point, yeah. right? Like later, maybe there's a little bit of that some, somewhere. It can be found somewhere. But this this unique this unique vision to a really okay. So I need to go back to something I didn't didn't. So when he talks about in the documentary, when he talks about the beginning of tubular bells, so section A going in section B, like the A minor to the F sharp mm -hmm. major, he calls it. He says, and then comes this incredibly beautiful melody. So he talks about his music as if it isn't his, mm -hmm. right? And he does that in a way that gives me goosebumps still. It's so convincing how he says that. Like, so that's how he, how he is thinking about that. Doesn't, doesn't really see himself as the originator, but he enjoys that he has discovered this, right? And, and that's, that's because he, he points out that, that particular thing uh, about tubular bells and at the same time, we see, okay, that is not in the demo. I, I find that fascinating. So we see that, like, on the, the, the process of discovery, um, he, f he finds things that define moments for him, like, even if he hasn't really planned it out before. And I guess maybe that's also why this piece is so dear to him, because as someone who was so, <clears throat> at the time, so... Um, can I say afraid of reality? He actually says music was more real to him than reality because reality was so scary. Yeah. Maybe um, the the thought that in this place he would be taken by the hand and led to beautiful play, like to beautiful things. Maybe that must have played a part in that. That 
what was coming out was actually beautiful and yeah. meaningful. Yeah, the the the, the fam, family background, let's say, plays a big role there, and uh, um, but also also the fact that he had um, these um, you know like one uh, experience with LSD. I don't know if you remember that. He also writes about that in the book, and and he basically says he got so scared because everything appeared uh, so mechanical to him in that state. Uh, maybe I'm just paraphrasing it in the wrong way here, but but uh, as a matter of fact, it seems to me as if there is something um, in that experience that uh, probably made him like realize even more how important it is to to kind of like. To, to bring his humanity into what he was doing. Like, I think he was always doing that, but somehow an experience like that, where you see like you could be mechanical about things or you could be technical about things and then realizing like, okay, he doesn't do that. And the funny thing is that by doing something or creating something as amazing as Tubular Bells, it, it, it was like maybe like incredibly technical. So just the... The the the, first, the last section on on tubular bells the before, before the sailor's hornpipe mm -hmm. right like his guitar playing is in, incredibly technical and this but again sort of like coming also from this idea that there's he's playing two guitars that talk to each other that play with each other mm -hmm. so so the t technicality aspect let's say in terms of playing and strength and and mm -hmm and dexterity and all of these things it's all present in what he does but at the same time like the emotional uh the emotional uh, aspect of the music is always first mm, yeah yeah and and it's and that that is really to me like sort of like an encapsulation of what makes his music so great because it offers something for every everyone you know and even even as a musicologist uh you can find things that you wouldn't believe somebody would do. The finale in Opus One, it's already there, it's already present. And actually, funnily enough, the um, it's the bass line, and now we can like nerding out a little bit here. Mm, the bass line, it which is which is in a Dorian scale, and it's simply simply shifting it up and down. So it starts as an E, E Dorian, uh, F sharp Dorian, and then A Dorian. Okay, so. But happens on top, and in Opus One, it's even more pronounced. The the chord that is played over the first over the E Dorian is an E mixolydian chord, so an E major chord over in the E minor bass line, uh, and it's it's fascinating because like if you if you take away the movement of the of the parts, the lines, it's incredibly dissonant. But the way that he has sort of like laid out the, the the notes in time, you get this 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 incredible like yeah it is bluesy in a way it's bluesy it's always a combination of major and minor, and like when the when the when the um, the pattern the bass pattern moves up to F sharp actually the F sharp is not the bass note but B B natural is the bass note which uh, on the real tuba bass you can hear that played with an organ bass right. Um, it's it's just so intricate. Like everything is so incredibly intricate, and you, then you have like uh, at the end of the. I think it's a again like the finale theme is a ten bar phrase. I think maybe or twelve. I can't remember now. Um, 
it's 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 so funny that it's again it's like the a the a suspended four chord and then you know da da right da da so the, so the suspension to the to that super obvious son of major and you still have the the bass line in minor underneath mm-hmm. and so it's just so it's just so special and and rich and 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 sort of uh, fearless but always with that with that emotional uh romantic romanticism as a big part of it mm. and at that mm. at that time already like people were were not so not so keen on doing that anymore like the minimalists were doing that in their way by staying within the within the field of the pattern let's say yeah. which is the simplified pattern and then you have groups like yes for example where you have this this romantic kind of like um uh, develop you know like developing themes and stuff but uh, in general it was already getting getting a little bit unpopular maybe it would be interesting do, do you play the bass as well i do yes yeah. Yeah. so what would interest me is um from your perspective when i watch the um um, the live performance of Tubular Bells, one of the early ones uh, at the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know this, but he's actually playing the bass um, yeah. in, in, that, in that concert. And um, he didn't actually play the bass at all before he started playing with Kevin Ayers. Mm-hmm. Um, so he picked it up very quickly. Um, now, I'm bilingual, so I speak Dutch and German as my mother tongue. And um, also English, I learned that pretty early on. So... When I take on a, a different language, and I think this is for bilinguals very often, when you speak um, in one of the languages, you will sound to a native speaker to someone else, but you're never really a native speaker in either, in either tongue usually. So it's always influenced by the other one as well. And you take on a different personality, but it's, I know, it's, it's, it has, it's always mixed. And I wonder if you can hear maybe, do you think it matters that he was so natural in so many different instruments mm-hmm. um, that in his guitar playing, in his bass playing, he actually says, I, I wanted to play the bass almost like a melodic instrument, or more like a guitar maybe. And then he, his, his most famous theme is actually on the piano. And I wonder if, if this complete openness is, can you can, can hear that in his different performances in, in instruments, but also maybe, as you said, in his harmonic language, because you would like different instruments can do different things and some things which are very unnatural in one instrument are completely um, accepted on another instrument and work on another instrument like even fret the fact that you're playing something fretless makes a huge different mm-hmm. um there are quarter tone instruments and so forth yeah. um, do you think that this harmonic language as you describe it is maybe part of this completely completely natural um, ability to just pick up an instrument and play with it I don't. I don't think it. It can ever be completely natural to anybody to just pick up an instrument and play it. But I, yeah, I agree with you. I, if you, if the, your main interest is the music itself, mm-hmm. right? Then that is. Then you serve the music somehow, and you, you know, like I think also in the in the autobiography it talks about there's an ant or that has a piano and he plays on the piano and mm-hmm. and he has this experience of. Of making sounds with with different kinds of instruments, so the guitar is the one that he's most proficient in because he was just playing it a lot, and and he had that folk influence, and he learned the fingerstyle guitar and all of that, which was very important also for his electric playing later and stuff, right? But 
um, I think if your focus is the music, you just you just you just create the sound world. You just try things, right? And and it's always been fascinating to me to kind of like realize, for example, um, Punkadiddle on Platinum, which is like a uh, like a funny tune there. That these themes he played them on acoustic guitar with fingerstyle with with a com- accompaniment and melodies. Mm-hmm. So 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 things that are kind of like we know them completely out of context of like how he first kind of came up with the melodies. So that's why we don't really know has he has he really started like the the main riff tubular bells on the piano or maybe it wasn't we don't really know. There are so, sort of he, he does claim in, in Changeling that it was it's sitting down and playing on the piano. But I agree. Yeah. Who knows what yeah. came before yeah. actually committing yes. to it on uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah, like like I already mentioned, like you know, we're we're talking about Opus One, right? So the demo for Tubular Bells. So um on I think the uh, Incantations uh deluxe edition there is a piece called Piano Improvisation, which is a demo again. But it's a demo for, believe it or not, Platinum and Guilty, a piano improvisation. Mm-hmm. It's called Improvisation, it's not an improvisation. Right? But it's the themes are there. So, and again, played and recorded with an instrument that has nothing to do with the, with the end result. Uh, and, and that's why, in a way, Opus One has sort of like, is even more important because you can see he already had some idea about the orchestration. So it was really um, more, more decided on the form it would going to go in. Um, and also, I mean, you know, like some really, really unique things that he, he's been sort of like, from my perspective, sort of like exploring over his career by like combining uh, triplets with, with uh, binary rhythms, for example. It's already present in the very first section of tubular bells these things that like people don't talk about this you know they they maybe talk about that it's in 15-8 and stuff like that but then realizing that under the 15-8 you have the bass line which has a triplet right so 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 it's really incredible that these these elements are already there they are the demo the, the demo already carries the main features uh not only for tubular bells you know, the Opus One for Tubular Bells, but also for most of, well, or a big chunk of his career. At least the, the, the early trilogy or maybe quadrilogy of releases, there's lots of... Uh... Yes, <clears throat> but, but, but funnily enough, we don't have any songs there. No. So we got into that later. Maybe, I mean, Incantations um, has, um, the second movement has... Sort of... Yeah, but, the, yeah, I mean, there's, there's vocals, but there's not a song form. No, it's That's what I mean. Like, yeah. Yes, yeah, there's no song form. But then, you know, like there was, uh, um, you know, like Don Alfonso and <laughs> stuff like that, that they, they did us for, for fun, um, which, which sort of like uh, hints at, you know, that there could possibly be a songwriter in there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to all that, right? Just how intricate it is, maybe um, that's a nice anecdote, is that I played you my CD, which I bought in 1989, as I said, um, yeah. which has stayed with me um, of this one person paying tribute to Oldfield by recording a note by note. Um, well, more or less. More or less note <laughs> by note um, um, performance. I'm going to call it a digital performance of, of, of two, two levels. 
Um, I still think it's pretty well done, but um, to, to a degree. But um, then at the very beginning, um, when when the bass comes in, you instantly notice that it's actually um, uh, in the wrong. Like it, it, it comes in at the wrong moment, and yeah. so it actually it's rhythmically wrong. Yes, um, which is fascinating. <laughs> I mean, um, there's there's also, I mean, this would have been something much easier to fix in 19. I don't know. It was, I think, recorded in nineteen in the mid '80s. But it would have been much easier to to fix this mm -hmm. um, than it would have been for Mike Oldfield to fix it. Uh, all these things when he was recording Tubular Bells. But but he, I would assume that it just didn't get noticed. Yeah. So there is something, the intricacy and what you say people don't notice. I think it's because it is, it is, um, it is not complex in any way that it's trying to be complex. It's if there is, um, you know what? Even even though I'm I'm not sure about that, I think he's trying to be clever. You think so? Yeah, yeah. Not trying because he succeeds. You know, like he's not trying. Uh, but it's 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 incredible to see how how the 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 interrelatedness of the of the themes is pretty much there. You are absolutely right. It's not for the sake of being clever, but still, it is clever. It's sort of like the ideal state. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, there's what, what one thing I, I what I like about Opus One is that you can, in some parts, you can really hear that even more clearly. Um, mm -hmm. So if, maybe that's the the great thing about the later recording is that it um, because it is more rich in in, in texture and more dense. Yeah. Is that um, some of these things blend more, and then um, it turns into a, like you can you can listen to the sound of it. And, and and you would have to like search like more actively search for it. But I I notice on many passages, one thing he does quite often. I think that's typical for him is he's not only introducing a theme and then using it later on in the piece, but he's actually introducing it in in in, in like instrumental sections before it actually arrives. So he's actually introducing it on a subtle and on a subconscious yes. level. Yes. That's I think that is clever. Mm -hmm. I just feel that. Um, Maybe 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 it's because I know this piece so well. Maybe, I don't know what it would have, would have been felt like if I had listened to it later, and I just never had the idea that I had to work on, on liking it. You know, where there's this music which you have to work. Sometimes it it can pay off listening to something you're intrigued by it, but you don't quite understand it. Yeah. This was never the case with Tubular Bells, and yeah. I realized only later how intricate it is and how much is happening harmonically. Mm. And when you watch him play it, or when you watch a group of players perform it. Mm. There is a lot going on. There's so much going on, and there's so much, um, as you said, dexterity that's required of the performer. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't feel that way when 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 I listen to it. Mm -hmm. Maybe because I don't play the instrument, I don't play a guitar, and don't play a bass. Yeah, it's sort sort of like an effortlessness to it. Exactly, and it's 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 part of it's part of the the gift, you know, mm -hmm. that like Mike and his that his surroundings sort of like had, yeah. you know, to, to make something like this, this beautiful and, and lighthearted and serious, you know, like it's every, everything at the same time somehow. And that's why like coming back to the idea of the influences, right? Mm. It's like, we, we just said that there is no song really, no song form, but then the Piltdown Man is sort of like a joke yeah. somewhat on, on, a, on a song form right and we we don't know we don't really know if 
like the story goes that the voice was put on after he's gotten like rejected by the companies. We don't, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, he's not a trustworthy narrator, I suppose, in many, in some respects. Yes. Um, I mean, it has, like I say, it has the voice, but like I, you can, you hear it, it's the, it's the lead, the lead part, right? It's, again, it's like when it's this, the same melody is present just two sections before it comes yeah. on the record. So the, the, that's why, you know, the live version on Exposed of Side 2 is so uh, beautiful because the, the Piltdown Man voice actually is played with strings. The melody is played with the strings. And it's, it's fascinating. It's incredible. Yeah. And, and we'll get to all that. Like, there was one more thing I wanted to say that like you were saying that in Opus 1, like, some of the things are more obvious, right? Like, the ideas or the, like, what, what's actually happening is more obvious. Kind of true. Um, if we look at the demo for Amadon, for example, you realize that he, he like, all the themes used in Amadon, they're supposed to work, they They can all happen at the same time. They co can coincide and they are can be in canon with themselves. So the intro of the demo of Omadon has all that in it. But then it's stripped down for the original version. You know, you can see so there's in terms of like the concept, there's even more there in the demo phase. And then he kind of comes to his senses and says, okay, no, I don't need to show people that I can do all this. You know, I can, you know, but I don't. And that's somewhat different still with Opus One going to Tribal Belts because he's kind of like starting out to realize that he can, you know. Yeah. And then the the album is the realization of that. And then I think actually Hookers Rich is a good example. If you listen to the demo and the front of it, it's basically the same. Yeah. Composition is pretty much formed and it just got re-recorded. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, when I um, so when I was looking for possible um, like similarities in, in in the music scene at the time, I mean, there's actually, as I said, I don't think there's anything um, really. I mean, in terms of every single record which is sometimes named in the context of this one is just a rock band expanding the barriers of rock, which is not what this is. Um, so I suppose the only thing you, we should mention you've mentioned Pink Floyd's Atom Heart Mother. That is the like the first side. That is the only piece which is remotely like in concept. But but then even then, it, there's no real similarity. Mm -hmm. um, and when I did, I think when you when I listen to Tubular Bells, the more I listen to it, I think I'm the only when I listen to the way the, to the sound of it and the way the many of the compositions flow. It sort of it has this the Celtic in the Celtic folk um, thing seems to be closest. But then obviously it has a different harmonic language and it has all these other influences which go into it. And in a way, I think Opus One has even less of that. This, 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 this idea of Celtic, that seems to be something which came in through the instrumentation, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, Opus One, I feel, is maybe my, at, his, at his purest. That's why I'm so grateful it exists, because it, it places the piece more in its time than, than Tubular Bells. Tubular Bells is, I think, far more timeless than... Then Opus One, Opus One, recording technology, um, the performance—it's—it's it's more in its time. But it's the great thing is that it's—it seems to be even more of him in a way. It's—it's. It's, I can imagine him sitting there as he describes it, in this little room, writing these themes, and then weaving it into something incredible. There is even 
um, bluesy stuff. Yeah. Right. So the um, the the triplety kind of like bluesy thing that like there's the uh, a Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho kind of melody, right? Which in Opus One is even more pronounced and repeated much more than uh, on the final version of, of Tubular Bells. It, because I'm, I'm just mentioning that again because I, th I think we forgot to mention this influence, mm -hmm. right? The, the blues guitar. That's true. Um, very funny because like people would say that if there's one guy who can't play the blues, it's it's Mike Oldfield. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but I totally I totally disagree. Like there is uh, a, 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 you know a, a solo the solos he plays with Kevin Ayers like uh, incredibly bluesy. You know, and kind of uh, in in a in a very in a very particular way, and so emotional that yeah. like like when the solo starts, the whole music gets transformed. Yes. You know, and that is that is sort of what is so special about it when he's working on his and doing his own music. He, it, we, you don't get that effect so much. That obviously, like anything that he introduces instrumentally or mus musically, kind of like gives a lift or gives a change to the music, but it's not like it feels like something that exists in a different universe. Mm -hmm. But when he plays with other people, that's sort of like what sometimes happened. He plays a note, like you hear the band sounds huge, Mike plays one note, and suddenly the band sounds small. You know, that's sort of like the experience I have with, with his tone and with his kind of playing. So it stands out so much and, and changes changes the surroundings. It's literally like, it's really like one note that he plays is for me is like the purest expression of art because like it changes everything around it, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, it's a, it was a particular kind of art, let's say. There's other art that does other things. But, uh, and and in, the, in his own work, that sort of is, is more relative. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not that strong. And that's, that's what's kind of cool. And maybe that's also the reason why he kind of like was not so much a collaborator with the exception of like working with David Bedford a lot. Right. Yes. But like, if you realize, okay, for what I'm doing, like it really needs to, the, the context needs to be my own stuff for it to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's, it's good that you bring up the blues, I guess, because I've sometimes I listen to yes and Steve Howe and, um, there's, there's a sort of, I've always thought there was, in many passages, there's a sort of um, a similarity in sound, a sort of a, a, an overlap. And then even another guitarist where I sometimes hear it is Kirk Hammett um, in his late 80s phase. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, would Kirk Hammett be listening to Mike Oldfield? I doubt it. So where's this coming from? So maybe it's, it's the blues. It's maybe that's one thing I know. Certainly Steve Howe was very much uh, into it. So um, I, I, have, I have kind of like some... Uh just recently gotten some more fascinating uh, info about Mike Oldfield, like because I talked to uh, Ant Glynn, the guitarist who played with him in '83, mm. uh, and just explained to me that Mike was a brickshit, actually a real fan of blues rock, and Ant played a tour with uh, uh, Midnight Flyer, I think was the band, opening for ACDC, and so Mike Old actually saw bands like. Midnight Flyer, but also ACDC, and he kind of like, so was pretty much always kind of like connected to the scene where you would never really see these uh, connections, but he was, was a big fan of, of music in general, 
and and it's like it's fascinating to me because then like looking back something like the the the, the theme the bluesy themes in opus one sort of like start making more sense mm-hmm. you know if you look at at the at that kind of uh you know that perspective things we only yes. kind of figured out later about him things that he never really talked about uh himself right so which music yes. i think like there's yeah. there's only one article that i can that i know of where he talks about music that he likes and listens to and there was like i only one i remember was that in the court of the crimson king was actually mm-hmm. part of his top five or something incredible that is interesting yes, yeah I didn't know that yeah either. yeah um And his choice of vocalist for uh, on a strange record like Earth Moving, he had Adrian Ballou, right? And he had Adrian Ballou not just because of his singing, because Adrian was in King Crimson, yeah, right? And Michael likes Discipline, you know, that record. And also, also, I I know that Mike even also approached Robert Fripp to play on Tubular Bells too and stuff like that. So there's there's a lot of uh, little details of information that like people don't know or wouldn't believe then this story that he got contacted by by Michael Jackson is actually true it was in around 84 83 84 I don't know which record that would have been I think he does mention yeah that, that would have been for sort of a collaboration yeah 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 so so and like to me it doesn't come as a surprise because if you are a musician if you're a musician and you you have some sort of like uh, exposure to Mike Oldfield's music, that there is your, there's your, for lack of a better term, there's your God. Mm. It's it's sort of like, th- that's what I what I what I was saying. Like there's there's like a certain, the context. He may always Mike always made the context, created the context for himself, which also means that he created context for others. In a sense, like like uh, uh, a context that isn't was not like, readily available to a lot of human beings yes right like if you want to be creative you want to play in a band and you're you're in america let's say you're so kind of drawn into the tradition into the rock and roll into the blues that that it's pretty 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 difficult to kind of like uh, emancipate yourself from from those influences right and so some sort of and and this this is sort of what what opus one kind of hints at that in a way, it's sort of an expression of not going with what was going on. Yeah, that's my impression as well. Yeah. So it requires a, a lot of courage and and uh, self-esteem in a way. With funny kind of like because he he would probably say he was very insecure, and he says that you know like he was certainly very insecure back then. But in terms of the musical vision, the artistic vision, like okay, no compromise. Mm. I wanted to ask you also a question about um, what I'd be curious in the the middle sec the, the, the section where the bass part starts. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about it a lot and he says um, it was really hard to to perform because it had to be one take um, for it um, to work, and um, it was physically demanding and it was almost like his fingers were bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, this section um, is it, it didn't have to be that long. Like purely on paper, you could have you could have just made it a lot shorter, but no. it isn't short. And I remember very distinctly that when I listened to this the very first month of listening to this record, that was the magical moment for me. The the, the incredible patience mm-hmm. that is in this section and the suspense and the tension um, of 
until the melody actually arrives. And that is also in Opus 1 already. So, Okay, I, mean, I can be a smart ass here. No, be a so, smart so, ass. I want to, I want to ask yeah. you, is there, the, talk about Opus 1 and then what I'd really love to know, do you think there is, because I was actually, I was almost, um, it almost uh, hit me like a shock when each time again, when the, mute, when, when, when the voice announces the first instrument. Yeah. Is there a logic to this? Do you think, or is it just purely instinct that um, dictated the length of this passage? Okay, I already said that that the finale section, the, the 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 famous like with the introduction of the instruments and stuff, that is the most harmonically adventurous section of the whole of Opus One and Tubular Bells. It is crazy. That's interesting. It is crazy. It's super dissonant. If you play these chords on the piano, the melody with the chords on the piano, it sounds wrong. Mm -hmm. It sounds completely wrong. In Opus One, like right at the beginning of the bass riff which he plays beautifully in Opus 1, actually, already. Uh, he has the major, puts the major chord on top right away. So it takes away from the surprise that it actually is, ma is major and not minor. In the, in the studio, in the in tubular bells, this is more disguised. It's quieter and it's not a, the full major chord from the very beginning. And so what I think is happening is that the repetition of that bass riff makes us kind of feel very comfortable with that sound and kind of like takes takes the takes the harmonic information out of the equation somehow mm -hmm. because it's repeating it so many times that when something else happens that could be dissonant right the baseline has already become its own entity mm -hmm. and it it kind of like loses the power to change, to, to be, you know, to change the harmonic content of what's happening on top. That's, that's and, a good point. And it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an effect or like this accumulative effect, let's say. Uh, I have started to understand that and use that in my compositions as well, where you, you basically present something as if it's correct, mm -hmm. as if it's consonant, you could say. You present it that way, And you, 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 and then you introduce something that is not consonant with what it's already happened. But since you have presented it with such a conviction, let's say, mm. it then works. And I think that's what's happening here. So the baseline is repeated so many times so that it really becomes an ostinato, a drone almost. It's a drone. And it's, it's the drone of E, F sharp over B, Right, and then to A, and it's that that progression just of the root notes. That's what kind of like remains in people's heads, and then comes the 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 major the major melody major. But right, so it, it's with it's it's a bluesy scale on that, yeah. Because da, 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 so it's the the flat seven going to the root, and it's just incredible. And so I think, and even though this may not have been consciously done this way. But that's, that's sort of like what's happening. So you introduce the theme, you wait, you wait, and then you add something. And actually, the very beginning uh, of Tubular Bells, you have, the, you have the, just the theme, just some piano, um, and then the, all the other instruments hit, come in after like five repeats or something like that. Also here to note, like it's not four or six or eight or seven. I mean, or it could have been seven or five. It's... it's Like the repeats are also not, it's not an even number. So like you're surprised 
when when it comes in and then it's harmonized then that theme is harmonized and so in and and you get the before the harmonization happens you don't have the full picture because you're missing missing one of the one of the seven notes time timing let's yeah. say is a very very important part in in his music and all so has always been like the, when you watch him um like live performances and the band plays at the wrong tempo you can see his face like oh my god you know like he's so aware of like okay if we guys play this just three bpm too fast it's not going to have the impact it's like completely losing the impact and stuff like that i know i i mean as just i you know i say i know that that's really the case because i, I can see it in his expressions and and you can also tell yeah it just doesn't work as well as if it was slightly slower you know and um and again like all these tempo changes everything's already there in in opus one mm. and it's like we don't know as we said we don't know if it's spliced or whatever or if there was a plan or if he's written down the bpms or we don't know that you know but um it's fascinating it is fascinating And it's interesting also if you compare it to the Montreux version, which he played later, which is actually probably that would have been the version that Richard Branson would have hoped for, like with a band and actually in the mood of a rock idiom. Mm. I think it takes someone for him to make that work. I don't think um, anyone else could have just played that. Uh, yeah, and such a small band. It was uh, six people Yeah. right at that at that point. And like the first the first tour he did was 55 people. That yeah, was, oh, yeah. you know... So, and that's a wonderful version. And that's sort of like a jazz rock version, you could say, um, which is wonderful and incredibly well recorded as well and spliced together from several shows. But yeah, you can, you can kind of like see all of these things happen in a relatively short time frame. So Opus One, then maybe at the most two, two, three years, sort of like, and we have, we have the fully fleshed piece, right? Yep. And then, at first, no, uh, there was no. He didn't want to tour. He did like two. I think there were two performances. Yeah, one which the BBC and then the yeah. yeah and and there's actually a recording of the of yeah. the live premiere um, somewhere. There are definitely problems. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, but people went nuts. You know. Still. Like, still. Yes. yes. So, <laughs> I don't know. And then, like, five years later, there was uh, the exposed tour in 79. Yeah. yeah. It's also, I think, a beautiful example for music which works best for people when they don't come in with any expectations. Which Because I think he talks about the process of trying to find a deal based on Opus One demo. Mm. And um, there is so much resistance against, I think, the idea um, of doing it and doing something like that. But then it gets its American breakthrough when it's just a few seconds of it are played. Okay, let's, let's say a minute of it is played in The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. It's not the soundtrack to The Exorcist, never has been, but it's, um, it's still vitally important in a way because it sets the tone of that movie, mm -hmm. but it's in the background and it's set to build pictures and people are not actually coming in expecting, okay, this has to be rock music, this has to be classical music. They, they experience the music as it is, mm -hmm. and then it suddenly takes you in completely. I think that's also a sign of what, how different it is from anything else, and um, in a degree, even from his own work, that it makes it somehow. Yeah, totally, totally. Like the so when 
the opening theme, like the Exorcist theme, like you could, you could, for me, it has nothing to do with the minimal piece of, like no. a minimal composer would have done. Because again, yes, it's a pattern, yeah, but it's a melodic pattern. You know, it has like the, the, the main feature is his melody. And that is also pos quite possibly why it, it became such, a, such an iconic device that then found its way into, into culture. Like in every, everybody does it. If you want to have uh, something like suspenseful, yep. uh, you know, before, before this, this little uh, piano uh, tinkering, let's say, right? There, there was uh, Bernard Herrmann doing scary music and it was completely different. Yes. And then suddenly you have these, 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 this glockenspiel and, and piano combination and people start, you know, using that device to, to in, in film music yeah. and in, uh, in uh, whatever, like adverts, uh, you know, um, sound logos that, that um, what was it? Was it Intel? Mm. Yes. It's the first four notes. No, 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 no. Oh, there was telecom. There's actually. Um, yeah, there was, that was telecom. But in Intel, in the Intel logo, sound logo is the first four yeah. notes, and and it's uh, yeah, it's it's a cultural phenomenon. If we talk about the Opus One as the demos that you go and shop around, I I can understand that people maybe didn't understand it. Okay, maybe it's the, like the first the first section that has sort of like the flavor that it would have had when recorded properly. The rest obviously has a very different flavor. It's much more naive, uh, but not naive compositionally or musically, but in terms of like what was accomplished, what he could accomplish in terms of recording it himself. So, so, so just being, being given the opportunity to record part one first, and then there was like a break again. And then um, part one was done like in a week, I think. And then part two was done in like three or four weeks or something like that. But with a, with a longish break in between that, that is sort of, there was, was a, is a gift to us all that, that, that it happened that way. And while we're talking while you were telling all this, I um, think one thing about the Opus One demo is also that <clears throat> there is less dynamics in that one. There's so much more dynamic in, in the, in the finished piece. And one thing which makes the finished piece so interesting is that some of the most prominent instruments on, on tubular bells are instruments which would usually be in the background and hardly in the foreground, mm -hmm. um, which is quintessential to recording as a medium, because the um, as, as microphones were becoming better and better, you, you would actually pick up like voices which would which would, would only have worked in a very small space. Mm -hmm. The intimacy of those voices could be translated to a completely different, like much wider soundstage. So you could have a very intimate voice over a large orchestra playing. Mm -hmm. And he's using that very effectively, both in tubular bells and Hergus Stritch, mm -hmm. um, with the glockenspiel and with the, uh, obviously the tubular bells as well, mm -hmm. um, which he actually, even on the recorded medium, could hardly get loud enough <laughs> to get the desired result. And that is sort of missing from, from, from Opus 1 still. That, I think the Opus 1 doesn't have this... The dynamic range. The dynamic yeah, range yeah. and this idea of small instruments sort of taking the place that the, that the singer would take yes. in, in, um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a more traditional pop song or, or jazz song. Yeah, yeah. 
And funnily enough, there's another like version kind of of tubular bells, which is the music of the spheres, which he mm. did uh, yes. 2005 or around that time. And, and there it's also the closed miking that makes that work. Whereas the harp is the lead instrument in an yes. orchestra, which hardly ever works yeah. unless it's amplified. And you're right. And that's kind of goes back to what I was saying that the recording studio became a big part of the compositional process and the arrangement process because there was all, you could only present that sort of balance in, that, in, in a recorded medium. And that was also one of the arguments he had for not performing live because it was difficult to get these balances uh, in a live performance. So that's why like the, the first attempt with the big orchestra, big band, and then like the band got smaller to 10 people and six people. And there was only always ways to kind of like uh, rearrange it for, for a different uh, ensemble, um, like some more successful, some less successful, you could say. But always, always fascinating. And yeah, uh, I guess the, the experience of recording the demo and then seeing what can, ha what can come out of the demo um, must have been incredibly inspiring. Yeah. And then having the opportunity to, to have, you know, have some, some money, like he said, this was still pocket money he got after the release of Tubular Bells. But he was able to ask for a studio to be installed so that he could start working on Harvest Ridge mm -hmm. at home as a recluse, yeah. you know. So, <laughs> so it, yeah, it, Opus 1 actually is nice because it sort of like hints and, and gives us basically all, most of the things that he would later explore yeah. in, in bigger forms. So. <clears throat> we haven't, um, we, we, I think we've talked about an hour now, we still haven't touched the one thing which probably would have made sense to start with. The, the, the main thing, of course, with um, Opus 1 as a demo to Tubular Bells is that it doesn't include the Tubular Bells yeah. um, yet. And um, there's not even the thought of including Tubular Bells, at least not concretely. We can, of course, speculate on whether something like um, um, a sort of um, the, um, the, the melody going through different colors was there at some point. We don't know. It, it isn't mentioned in Changeling. Um, as you mentioned, he hasn't spoken about it. Mm. Um, I know many, I've, I've, well, I don't know many people, but I've read on many, many forum contributions, many people saying, I love Chibler Bells, but I've never really liked the inclusion of um, a speaker who announces the, um, the instruments. Yeah. Um, that's, of course, the big thing, which that would probably mean that they would have preferred Opus One. Um, because it doesn't include the substantial yet. Um, I'll give you my opinion, and then I'll be curious to hear yours. I've always thought that without the substantial, maybe even really him, mm -hmm. but any um, human presence in there, I don't think the, the album would probably have taken off the way it did, um, at least on a long-term basis. Mm -hmm. After the, the, the exorcist would have worked, but to me, this piece starts off with... Um, As, as something which is very much in the tradition of this, as you said, romanticism, absolute music. It isn't classical music. It's its own thing. But it, it, it stands in this tradition, and he's mentioned Sibelius as a concrete yeah. inspiration, not an influence, I don't think so, but an inspiration. So he loved, we know he loved romantic um, composing um, and that style. And so it starts off with that, and it goes through all these variations of the theme, and then suddenly it goes into this base, as you said, this hypnotic 
space and it takes you even deeper. Even though it's a break and you would, it's, it should somehow cause a break, no, it actually takes you even deeper into this state. And I feel that suddenly there is the emergence of the voice. It includes something which is even like it's, it's outside of this world and it takes it in. It, it, it makes something which you can instantly relate to the human voice and he includes it in something which is on, on this remote ideal level, which music, only music, I think, can take you to. Um, really, that's what makes music so different from all the other forms. And he takes it in and he doesn't actually tell a story with it. He, he, he just lets the voice introduce the instruments. Even thinking about it, just move, it moves me when I hear it and it moves me thinking about it that he's able to to make, to, and also, also he, he, he said, I hated being asked why. And I think one of the reasons is that this is music which precisely, you cannot pinpoint the why, mm -hmm. but there is a meaning in it and you feel the meaning, but you cannot access this. And I think that is ultimately, it, it makes us aware of how small we are as human beings in the greater sense of things. Even if you're not spiritual, you will recognize how small, infinitely small you are compared to the universe. And I feel, not taking it too far, but that's what I feel when, Viv Stanshaw comes in. Yes, it's it's absolute genius idea to do that. Um, as you said, like the voice of Viv Stanshaw is also the way it sits on top of the music is sort of like it's, it's huge. Like it, it it's it's sort of like some sort of um, um, massive ceremonies, but but actually sort of like like. Okay, so the repetitive bass line, like where, where do we have that in classical music? It's Ravel's Bolero, uh, you know, Ravel's Bolero, which is sort of like famous for that. And you have the same theme going over and over, orchestrated differently. Yeah. So it's, it's, really, it's really very similar, right? The same idea. And around that time, you had um, Leonard Bernstein, Bernstein, making, you know, making his talks about music, like where the orchestra was playing and then he would stop the orchestra and would explain and say, oboes, can you play this part? And so, so it was almost like a, like a, like an educational, yeah. educational aspect. That's something that was around back then where you could make people aware of what's happening. And the voice introducing the instruments is, is almost like it, it takes, it takes the, takes the, as you say, the human voice, the iconic sound of the human voice and places that within an instrumental composition, like, along with the, with the production where the, the panning of the instruments is kind of, so they start in the middle and then they move to the sides and then you get the next instrument. And so stereo equipment, there's also the, on tubal wells, the famous note about can only be played on stereo equipment and stuff like that so um it's it's a it's a genius it's a genius thing that happened uh, uh peter and the wolf for example as sort of like an orchestral prokofiev an orchestral piece with narration which sort of like also speaks speaks to children right so it, it's sort of like the voice speaks to a very um deep part within us and it's just i i, I think it's just it's it really is literally genius, yeah. like that that happened that Viv Stanchel was available to do that, and uh, that it also has the comedy factor, you know, like so it's funny, 
yes. pronounced the words yeah. in a funny way, and and so it's it's taking it's taking something very serious and very emotional, something you could make you cry, and we know that Mike's music makes makes people cry, uh, and makes that gives that certain touch of lightness and relief somehow, and again like the demo for Omadon, like the finale of Omadon. In the demo, there is a voice on top of it, yeah. right? So, so again, that's why I think, even though maybe for in Opus One and then She Will Bells, it wasn't planned that it would go that way. But once it happened, I think they, you know, he and they knew uh, what incredible thing they had discovered. Mm -hmm. I think um, to me, it's the representation of someone who lives in the music. You can, I think there's probably, if you don't like it, you, you, you're seeing it sort of um, as is, sort of. You, you're looking at someone just telling you which instrument is coming in, and then the instrument comes in, and then you have the educational thing. And that is there, but I think, to me, it really, the whole piece has this, this movement, even though it is made up of different sections, which may or may not have been, um, at one point, different sections, like different pieces, but it has this flow and it goes to this moment and then the announcement tubular bells. And so it is moving towards this moment and then just the tubular bells come in, but it doesn't have meaning in the sense as a pointy in a story house. It just doesn't have, but it has meaning in the sense that only someone who is really deeply into, invested into that music can understand. It, it, it hits you, but, it's re but, but, but on, 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 on the surface, it's really just what it is. It's the tubular bells coming in. So it has, there's a sort of a conflict, I think, with your conscious brain and your emotional one, and the result is something deeply moving. It's, it's sort of a, a contradiction. Maybe it's sort of the clash of the harmonies, as you mentioned. Mm. Here's a clash between something that is sort of trivial and something comical, and at the same time, it's sad and uh, rousing and, and, and thrilling, and, um, and it has everything that his, that his, that his life was going towards in that sense as well. So it's... Yeah, I mean, there's there's something ver very beautiful about the moment that the tubal bell comes in because the, the uh, acoustic guitar, um, so the, the fingerstyle guitars that play sort of like arpeggios, they get introduced a little earlier and they're already in the mix. And when the tubal bell comes in, the arrangement changes and the, the, the voices come in and they yeah. sing a counter melody like which is new chords, slightly new chords, like there's a chord melody happening underneath that iconic melody then, and everything then fades out to be that, that, that ending, you know, which then at the very end is the, the beginning theme, yeah. but in major, yeah. with the major chord at the end. And it just gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Yeah, it took me a while to recognize. When you recognize, it's even yeah. more incredible. Yeah, it's it's really it's really incredible, and and just just sort of, and 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 then you know, going from that that A minor at the beginning to the E major. So that's so like, musicologists would say starts with a tonic and ends on the dominant, right? It's it's just such a genius thing, like. Really, you couldn't, you couldn't, you could say you couldn't really plan it that way, but somehow it was planned that way, um, with lots of, you know, 
creative angles, let's say, that happened in between. But there was a plan for sure. As you're also a musician, do you think the fact that this had to be played, like the bass section had to be played physically and in, often in one takes, you think that impacts the the effect the music has? That it's, I mean, he's he's the struggle, the struggle, the struggle of playing yeah. it for sure, yeah. for sure. Like that, you you can feel the tension, um, and it's it's very much been sort of like part of of his sound. Uh, is is the the I didn't I you know I've never met the guy, but he m must have been incredibly powerful, like like strong person. I, I talked to a guy who was working at Virgin in the 80s and he was friends with Mike. And he said that Mike always wanted to go play squash or tennis with him. And so that, that Mike was really extremely physical yeah. as a person. Like, which, like, we're looking at he's like rather, like, not a, not a tall guy, right? But he must have had like lots of energy. And yeah, it speaks, it speaks through the music because. Mm -hmm. Like I mean, what does what does strength really? Uh, how does strength show itself to the outside? It ideally it could be seen as somebody's very tense, or like with the art, with the music, you can hear it as as effortlessness, yeah. right? And that's sort of like what's happening there. You have both like the tension and the aggression, and at the same time the 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 authority. Authority is a good word. Yes. And that's what it kind of transports, you know, authority. Yeah. Okay, is that enough for yeah. the first? <laughs> How many hours are we going to talk about Chibi Bells, I guess? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we're already talking about it. <clears throat> yeah. But it, it's it's good to see, um, you know, how much there is. Yes. So um, thank, thanks, everybody, for listening to this. This is just the, the beginning of... A, an ongoing series of, of podcasts on on Mike Oldfield. Next, the next one will be on Chula Bells. Finally, <laughs> finally, finally, Chula Bells. <laughs>